0: Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, January 17th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm speaking today with environmental reporter Sue Serks and political correspondent Sam Sokol. Good to have you both here with me today. How are you?
1: Doing
2: well. Thanks for having us. As well as can be expected. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It is day 103 of the war Two more soldiers were killed in Gaza fighting overnight, Zechariah Pesach Heber and Yair Katz, bringing the total number of slain troops killed in the ground offensive in Gaza to 192. Kibbutz Be'eri announced last night that two of its residents, hostages Yossi Sharabi and Itay Sversky, were murdered in Hamas captivity in Gaza. The family of Yossi Sharabi has already announced that they are sitting shiva for him. No such plans were announced yet for the family of uh, Itai Sversky. Medications will leave Doha and Qatar today to Egypt and then be transferred into Gaza. Don't know how long that will take, but that is in the agreement that was mediated between Israel and Hamas by Qatar and France to deliver medications to a reported 45 hostages. We'll discuss the initial plans to rebuild the Gaza border communities. What does that mean? We'll also talk about what is the plan for the northern evacuees, many of them in nine different hotels in Haifa, and the passing of the 2024 budget in the midst of a war. All of that after a quick break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk law firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk law team strongly supports Israel. Okay. so we'll start with you. You attended the first of many sessions slated to envision how to rebuild the Gaza border region, which we also call, call the Gaza Envelope, um, after it was invaded and in many parts destroyed by the Hamas terrorist onslaught on October 7th. It's obviously very emotionally weighted, given what happened there. But as you also pointed out in your article, which is a very broad look at what this really is about. The area was one of the fastest growing parts of the country before October 7th. So tell us what you're thinking about post-writing, during your writing, while being at this session.
2: I think first of all, that's a very interesting point. I did not realize that that Gaza envelope area uh, in the northern Negev was growing at twice the rate of the national average before. And that's despite all the rockets attacks and all the, you know, it says a lot about, first of all, the price of housing, um, that people can only afford houses down there. But also, I think, you know, a desire for many young f- families. There's also been huge growth in the north, in the northern border area, looking, looking for quality of life and good education and what have you. Um, but, you know, this is an unprecedented challenge for Israel. Other, other countries have been through mass earthquake events and what have you, or, or wars. Uh, but this level of destruction uh, is something that Israel hasn't faced before. So this this was a first meeting, it was actually called by um, a deputy director from the planning administration to start brainstorming with professionals. There were no politicians there. There were architects and planners and uh, and, and, and environmental experts. The first part was devoted to presentations and then the second part was devoted to round table kind of brainstorming and ideas the good takeaway was an incredible amount of goodwill and a and a and a desire on the part of the planners really, really to involve all the stakeholders. You know, the phrase kept coming back, we're going to do top down and bottom up. Uh, we're going to involve all the stakeholders, all the people involved. But then when you actually think, well, how are they actually going to do this? You've got so many cooks in the kitchen and you also have different ideas of, you know, where you're actually going to do this planning. So on the one hand, the government set up something called a Takuma which means revival administration, which is going to get a massive budget. It's 18 billion over five years and 1 billion to run their affairs. And there'll probably be more and donors will be giving. But the Takuma area is seven kilometers from the border. And it includes, um, you know, 20 odd villages, basically, Kibbutzim and Moshevim, mainly Kibbutzim, and the city of Steros. It's relatively, relatively sparsely populated. In the broader Western Negev, which is twice the number of Villages, if you like, Kibbutzim and Moshavim, more Moshavim, uh, basically half and half Moshavim and Kibbutzim, and the two towns of Ofakim and Tivot That's where the planning administration is planning. So you've got the planning administration looking at a much wider area than the Kuma administration, not to speak of the Israel Lands Authority. So you've got those initial three cooks in the kitchen. Then you've got the Housing Ministry. But in total, I saw a list of forty-three different ministries, government bodies. Uh, and other organisations which are going to have to be involved in all of this. And then, you know, the planning administration has also outsourced a lot of work. So there's a whole list of private companies that are involved. Israel is not great at coordination. This comes up every time in state controller reports, lack of coordination between ministries, between different bodies. So on the one hand, you've got this tremendous goodwill. On the other hand, you've got this massive salad of organisations um, I don't know how they're going to, uh, you know, you also had their academic institutes. So the B'Tsalil, the Technion, uh, Tel Aviv University, they're all coming up with these amazing ideas. The Green Building Council, uh, you've got the Society for the Protection of Nature in there talking about open space. There was even somebody from the military who revealed that they're thinking about um, increasing the military presence along the border by by a factor of two and a half, which means access roads and infrastructure. And, and it kind of certainly on our, on the table I was at, it was like a complete surprise. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of work that's going to be done. And obviously the clock is ticking because people want to get home.
0: Right. And that was my next question for you, is that, of course, there's the people that you speak to who say they just want to get home. And then there's people who say, yeah, I'm not so sure I could go back and live there. And obviously, this is that's not what this, what these sessions are about, but I'm wondering if that comes up at all if, we're, if they're going to first find out how many people are actually going to return to this region.
2: Well, that's obviously a question as well. I mean, that is one of the factors that they actually don't know how many people are going to want to return. So there's a a lot of, uh, you know, I think at this stage, mainly questions rather than answers. Okay.
0: And then turning, as you also pointed out, obviously there's all the northern evacuees who are scattered in hotels around the country. You pointed out that there are nine hotels, I think you said, in Haifa, in the northern city of Haifa, that are housing evacuees. Uh, you went and spoke with some of them. What were some of the things that you're hearing? What's their plan?
2: I did. So around 80,000 people were evacuated from the north, from from communities that are up to... 10 kilometres, which is around six miles from the Lebanese border. They're, as you rightly say, spread out all over the country, but mainly in the centre and the north. Something like 2,800 came to Haifa, mainly from the north with a few from Stirot, but it's very fluid because a lot of people are on the move still to apartments, to places in the district, to relatives elsewhere in the country, right down to Elat. Um, I talked to people from two communities in Haifa, in the, uh, the Dan Carmel, are most of the members of uh, Kibbutz Dan uh, who were evacuated. That's in the north at the foot of uh, Mount Helmon. Um, And uh, and I also went to the Leonardo, Leonardo Plaza, which is on the beach. And there there's a lot of people from Shlomi, which is in the Western Galilee. And I went because I think the northern evacuees face challenges of a different kind. You know, they weren't directly affected by the invasion on October the 7th. But while the Gaza evacuees have some kind of timeline for going home, the people from the northern border have absolutely none. You know, they don't know whether there's going to be a military uh, operation against the Hezbollah. They know that the Hezbollah is sitting on the border. They are absolutely terrified of, uh, of, of an infiltration through this. They've now seen what it means. Um, I talked to, uh, I actually, um, I met a lovely, lovely group of, um, of female pensioners who are knitting hats for soldiers. They've knitted around 800 so far. And they all said that they'd, they'd brought their children up through countless wars, Yom Kippur in 73, Lebanon, um, and that there had been infiltrations from the north, uh, from from Lebanon in the past. You know, older people will remember what happened in Marlot in 1974 when, school children were were taken hostage and and killed. Um, But they said this time it's different because of the tunnels and because they've seen what, you know, what can happen. I spoke to another young grandma who's still working who remembered the days when all the kibbutz husbands had guns at home. So they were ready in case anything happened. But, you know, we saw what happened on October the 7th and it was the same. She said, you know, the weapons cupboards are locked and there's not enough arms and people feel incredibly exposed. Now on the on the so there's this fear of going home but everybody's desperate to go home. I mean I never spend more than you know 3 nights probably in the same hotel. The idea of spending months and maybe even years in the same hotel is just something that I couldn't get my head around. You know, people have a lack of privacy, they're seeing the same faces every day. Uh, they're not working. No space. Are they working? Some, a lot of them are working, a lot, and some of them aren't working. You know, I met one guy who's got who's got a restaurant which is closed. He's got young kids, and so he's not working. Others are working either physically or they're working uh, remotely, or they're working uh, remotely. Exactly. So, it's, so it's a big mixture. Um, something that I heard repeatedly. I mean mainly from the women was how desperately they miss the ability to cook I'm sure how desperately they miss the ability to have the family round you know there are sons and daughters who've uh, who've moved elsewhere or been evacuated elsewhere and that get, being able to get around the table on a friday night is something that people people really miss I have to say on the other hand that nobody had a bad word to say or I should say everybody only had praise for both the Haifa municipality uh, and for the hotels that seem to be going totally out of their way to remove obstacles, to make things as easy as possible, um, to organize transport to the schools. You know, they've done what they could to keep the school children together. The, uh, the, the older kids from Shlomi are all, are basically all in the same place, those in Haifa in an old school, whereas Shlomi in general is just, is spread out through, Tiberias, Haifa, and Jerusalem. And in fact, uh, last week they had a meeting of all the Shlomi, Bar Mitzvah, and Bat Mitzvah kids physically at the Leonardo Plaza. They came from all over the country. But just imagine trying to coordinate something like that is an absolute logistical nightmare. But it's another example when you're used to living together in a small place. Shlomi, I was told, doesn't have a traffic light. You know, it's a very small community, but, you know, anybody who's been to Shlomi knows that it is absolutely right on the border. You know, one one woman in the hotel said she looks at there's a tower and she knows that they're watching her all the time, uh, you know, into her living room. But I think it's another example of the incredible way in which civil society has stepped up to the plate. And uh, and really rallied and organized to deal with the terrible things that happened on October the seventh. Agreed.
0: I was I happened to have been in Haifa as well yesterday for a different story, having to do with an art exhibit at uh, Witzel Haifa. The curators have placed video art in different cafes around the German colony neighborhood of Haifa. Including across the street from the Colony Hotel, which is this beautiful restored boutique hotel where there are also families from Shlomi. And uh, my guy, this this art curator who is a teacher at Vizo Haifa said the hotelier, he will not allow anyone into the hotel. He said, because essentially it's their house now. That's what they've done for this little hotel. He said he thinks of it as their apartment building, no longer a hotel. And he's very, very strict. There are signs in the front of the hotel saying, do not enter, do not ask to use the bathroom, do not come in and try and talk to them. This is a private residence. So It's very respectful. It is. Okay, thank you, Sue. All very enlightening in in the way that you can be. So thank you for that. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, Sam will turn to a very different subject about the passing of the 2024 budget.
2: I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old.
0: What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a four by four. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories, wartime diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now and he told me take with you a sleeping bag and a tent (laughs) and just go i texted him on like after i was told that he was killed
1: from their eyes i was a traitor
0: everybody needs their like blankie their teddy bear something to make them feel safe
1: i'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war
2: these children of hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido.
0: Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Sam, so you have been covering the budget discussions and it's passage, which hasn't always been as straightforward in previous years. And of course, one of the biggest issues that stood out was paying for the war in Gaza. Tell us about the process, what you have found in your coverage of it.
1: First of all, it's important to note that budgets for 2023 and 2024 had been passed uh, last May. But with the outbreak of war in October, suddenly the budgets that had been set for peacetime were Uh, found to be inadequate. So in December, there was an uh, amended budget for 2023 that was passed, and now we've seen the government pass the amended budget for 2024. This wasn't a particularly straightforward process because, you know, the war effort really required uh, belt tightening across the board. And every ministry essentially said, if you cut us this is going to be dangerous. So the communications ministry said, you know, if you cut our funding, this will affect uh, the resilience of our communications networks, which are critical in times of war. Uh, you know, the health uh, the health budget was is very important. Uh, and part of the problem, and the reason why uh, members of Benny Gantz's... Uh, National Unity Party, which is part of the coalition, voted against the budget was because there really wasn't any real push to get rid of extraneous ministries. Uh, There are are many ministries which were created in order to help uh, pull together Netanyahu's coalition and which are duplicative. They do similar work to existing ministries and they have all the overhead of independent ministries. So there was really a desire. By a lot of critics of the budget to see uh, these these cuts, to see them uh, close down. And this didn't happen. What we did see was an increase to the budget of about 70 billion shekels. Uh, I think about 55 billion of that was for, uh, for defense-related issues. And we also saw a lot of uh, back and forth uh, between Netanyahu and his ministers. So during a uh, meeting to discuss the budget earlier this week, uh, Education Minister uh, Kish stormed out of the room yelling at uh, Finance Minister Smotrich that he had no interest in anything he had to say because they were going to cut his budget significantly. Now what ended up happening is a 3% cut to uh, the base budget across the board for all the ministries uh, with other cuts here and there. Now it's important to sort of explain that the way the budget is written is written in such a way that even budget experts take a lot of time to figure out exactly what is being cut and what is being added because it's not a straightforward list of additions and subtractions, but rather things are placed here and there willy-nilly in, in such a way as almost to obfuscate the actual uh, actual numbers so, getting getting to grips with that is uh, difficult, and that's made more difficult by the fact that the government appeared to have communicated incorrect information regarding the budget. So, when the budget was passed, they claimed that they were adding significant amount of money to the education budget in order to keep uh, Minister Keish happy. But what we saw afterwards was uh, Keish telling reporters that his budget had been cut by three hundred. Uh, by 300 million. Uh, But beyond that, an analysis by uh, the Beryl Katzenelson Center uh, found that it had actually been cut by 600 million. Uh, So, these numbers are a little bit unclear. And even when you speak to lawmakers or look at uh, financial publications in Israel, the numbers can be contradictory. And it's. Uh, I think it's very hard for the average citizen or even uh, experts to really tell what's going on. What is clear is that uh, there's been a large budget increase for uh, the national security ministry, uh, for the military, and the cuts across the board are going to pay for that.
0: Okay, and then when you look at it, I know that you've been spending a lot of time looking at the budget, now that you can perhaps take a couple of steps back and look at it in this broad in sort of this broad view what's your sense really that we have here we have obviously a lot of money going to defense we are in a war and a war that we keep on being told will continue for many months but what else are you actually seeing in terms of the broad strokes for this 2024 budget what are some of the big ticket items or you know sort of the the red flags out there
1: Defense Minister uh, Yoav Gallant and uh, Finance Minister Vizal Smotrich, prior to the passing of the budget, announced uh, a 9 billion shekel program to help compensate reservists who have been taken now from their homes for more than 100 days. Uh, many of them, many of the people in the reserves, hundreds of thousands of Israelis have been mobilized and many have been complaining that their businesses are collapsing, that they are losing businesses and homes that they're going broke so a massive uh, financial influx of funds for uh, for helping to to compensate them and to keep them above the water we're seeing you know as i said everything is going for making sure that we can continue the war everything else is taking a back seat to to that effort there's also obviously compensation for people from who were displaced from the south efforts to rehabilitate the south following the war which is going to take a lot of money this is this is really a wartime budget most of the normal considerations uh have had to take a backseat
0: okay all right thanks for that sam appreciate the breakdown we are going to close out this daily briefing thank you sue and sam for being with me today it's been good to see your faces pleasure pleasure We'll be back tomorrow with another daily briefing. Uh, Stay tuned for that. This episode is produced by the Podwaves. If you have comments about this or any other episodes, always feel free to drop us a line, podcast at timesofisual.com. And of course, feel free to recommend us to other listeners and rate us wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, take care and be well.